This is Change Agents on WERU-FM, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates. I am Steve Westar, the host of Change Agents. My guests today are Gia Drew and Tracy Hare. Gia is the executive director of the Flower and Tracy is the executive director of Home and Bucksport. So we will be discussing Steve, your your sound is going in and out, Steve. Okay. Are you hearing me now? That's better. Would, I, would you just describe what Equality Maine does and how long it's been around? Sure. Um, so Equality Maine is working to ensure full equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mainers. Um, and we do that by building community, providing education, and advocating for policies and laws that protect LGBTQ plus people here in Maine. And we are now in our 39th year as an organization. We were founded in 1984 uh, after the murder of Charlie Howard in Bangor. I am uh, the executive director, and I've been in this position for about eight months, but I've been with the organization for more than 10 years. Thank you. Um, Tracy, um, same question to you. Um, What does um, HOME do? I, um, so home is uh, actually based in Orland, and home is a, a social service agency that works primarily with families and individuals experiencing homelessness and uh, folks living on limited income. We have a uh, we have four homeless shelters, a uh, two food pantries, a learning center, and organic garden programs. And the whole idea behind that is to to provide a sense of community for folks who are in the crisis of poverty. And uh, we're also a member of uh, MAS International, which is a global anti-poverty movement. Um, We're the only, uh, we're one of two members uh, in the United States. I'm the executive director. Um, Home is 53 years old this year. I've only been here for 19 years. I've been in the director position for uh, going on seven. Um, well, thank you. you. You both have a lot of experience. Um, uh, Tracy, can you remember the first time that you um, spoke up uh, about something that was wrong um, in some way, uh, even if you were little, being a advocate? Sure. So yeah, I was I was really young, and I I first I remember my first aha moment that something was wrong at about eight years old. Um, we were experiencing uh, so violence in our household, and um, in the middle of that trauma, I ran to a police station uh, for for help, and realized very quickly that that help wasn't coming, or at least it was coming for just about four hours. And then after that, we were on our own. And I recognized very early um, that um, my mother was a sex worker, and we were living in poverty, and that 
uh, help looked very different for people who didn't have money and didn't have careers or professions that were typical in society. I, by that time, I'd been to 20 different schools. And uh, so I realized then something was really off for a kid that uh, just wanted to be a kid. And how old were you? I was eight. And you did something to try to solve the problem? Absolutely. So I I met with my mother's uh, healthcare professionals. I met with school social workers really unofficially. It wasn't, you know, at eight years old, you don't carve out a plan in your life. But I became an advocate very early on. Um, in, in the 80s, uh, it was right around the time that domestic violence shelters were coming, uh, surfacing in Australia. And uh, I was really advocating in, in a child way uh, for, for help with that. Um, so it, the biggest, I think the biggest change maker there for us, for me, uh, my sister, was to meet with my mother's health care providers and to get assistance with her mental health uh, challenges. I, I understand you came to the U.S. from us, Australia, and um, not that long ago, you were um, took the oath. Uh, yes. Um, what was that like? It was pretty incredible. Um, it was it, for the first time ever. I felt like I had roots uh, in a country I had been in a uh, same-sex relationship for just over two decades, living undocumented. And so we had lived through DOMA and the Anti-Discrimination Acts of 95, and just uh, there was no path for uh, belonging. And essentially for most of my teenage and early adult years, I felt like a girl with no country. Um, so getting sworn in for the first time felt like I belonged somewhere and for the authentic, for an authentic reason, um, for honoring the relationship that I was in. And so it was it was a big day for us. I think I had about 25 people there. The little court in Bangor probably didn't know what hit it. And I had providers and friends from decades past there um, who were all uh, watching, watching the journey. I've been to a few of um, those swearing-ins, and they are—they're um, just a wonderful event. Yeah. Yeah, there were 17 countries represented that day, and um, a lot of LGBTQ plus folks, which to me was a real um, watershed moment uh, because we had—we've still got a long way to go, but we really had um, been disenfranchised through immigration law, which is supposed to be on the basis of family unification, but it's quite the opposite if you're uh, queer. Change sometime. Um, Gia, when was the um, earliest time that you can remember either engaging in helping other people or standing up for a cause? It's a great question. You know, I, I think similar to Tracy, I had a lot of memories from a from early age about just noticing injustice in the world around me. Um, I grew up in the Boston area in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and I started to notice just some troubling things, mostly around race. Um, this was the time around busing in the Boston area. And there was a lot of 
racial tension around who gets to be bust where, and there was a lot of white anger, right? White anger around uh, black folks being bust into white districts, and didn't make any sense to me uh, as a little kid. Like, what's why is someone upset about a kid going to school? It seemed like a really nice thing. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't understand that. And uh, it was confusing. So I started to notice these things about inequities in, in the world around me, whether that was poverty or whether it was race. And it wasn't until probably middle school or junior high back then. I'm not old. We used to call it junior high. We didn't call it that anymore. But uh, And there was, I think I was in eighth grade, and there was a, a proposition called Prop Two and a Half in Massachusetts that was going to cut property taxes which would also cut programs to public schools like art and sports and programs like that. And uh, I uh, got wind of this and started organizing in my school and found out there were other organizers around the state planning a mass walkout um, of students. And we were gonna meet up in uh, at the state house in Boston for a rally. And this is all well before the internet and everything. And this is just done by word of mouth and maybe a few phone calls and things like that. Um, and I organized a little walkout in my junior high and got about, I forget how many kids, maybe 10 or 15 kids, but it seemed like an army, army. I remember getting up in, in Madame Collins' French class and just standing up and saying, I'm walking out. <laughs> she was a little stunned. <laughs> and I met up with some kids and we, we took the bus uh, to downtown Boston. And when we got off the bus, there were um, thousands of other kids from all across the state who had this similar idea of walking out to protest cuts into education. And that was really uh, a telling moment for me to to believe in myself as an activist and organizer, not knowing that there'd be thousands of kids there. I just thought it was the right thing to do at the time. Uh, and then when I was there, it was kind of really exciting to hear all these young speakers um, talking about how important education is. And so that really got me fired up to sort of pursue injustice and being able to know I had a voice in this world. Uh, that was a difficult time in Boston. But hopefully all that better. Um, Um, and uh, did you involve yourself in anything else? Uh, apartheid is something I thought I remember. Oh, you know, um, so I finished high school and then went off to college. I was very fortunate that um, my family encouraged, you know, further education. And I was excited to become, study to become a teacher like a couple of my aunts. And so I went to a university in upstate New York called Syracuse. Uh, to become a, a teacher, uh, and this is in the the mid '80s, and a lot a lot was going on. Um, while I was, I knew myself to be LGBTQ. There wasn't a space for me to be out about that or protest about it or anything at that point. Even though this was the beginning of HIV and AIDS in this world, we kind of kept that very quiet to ourselves at this point. But there was a lot of other tension again around race, uh, especially related to to South Africa and apartheid. Um, and there was a campus group trying to get our university to divest um, from investments in South Africa and industries related to apartheid. And so I joined in 
one of those groups and held some signs on campus, uh, you know, in front of like the chancellor's office, you know, trying to encourage them to divest. And I remember like, you know, people were at a lot of questions. People really didn't know what that meant, what apartheid was or what what that meant for a university to be investing in a, another country or in, you know, corporations that were part of this process that's, that supported apartheid. So um, that was exciting to do that when I was a young adult. And, and it, 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 you know, yielded great returns. I think eventually Syracuse did divest. And uh, I was so excited probably five, six years later when I had moved back to Boston uh, there was a very special celebration. It was called Mandela Day. And uh, Nelson Mandela had been freed after decades of imprisonment and was uh, was on tour around the world and came to Boston for some reason. I forget why now. Um, but it was so exciting to to see and hear Nelson Mandela in person. Uh, um, Tracy, um, uh, when, how old were you when you knew that uh, you were going to be somewhere on the spectrum of LGBTQ? You know, uh, it's I would say high school. I had a crush on my English teacher. <laughs> and I hopefully she's not listening in Australia because she doesn't know this. But I had a crush on my English teacher. So I hope he's about 13. <laughs> and uh, were you um, accepted or were there... Um, things that other students were doing that were hurtful or worse? No, it's interesting. I, I moved around so much. I don't think that one particular school system was able to kind of nail me down as different. Um, I just went to so many schools. And of course, my mother, uh, she it was just very easy for me to be who I am. I didn't, I didn't experience the pain of being LGBTQ plus until I uh, was a late teen, so 18 years old, when I fell in love with a woman in another country. Um, and so it, it started from the government, essentially. My my life in school was so traumatic that I just didn't get to settle into one place to experience that, uh, that type of um, ch challenge. And then um, in your work life, in the U.S. have, um, including at uh, uh, where you are now at home, have there, uh, do you run into negative comments? I don't. Oh, well, I do, in fact, not 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 by my employer um, and, and community members that, that we work and collaborate with. However, it is the sort of the lowest common denominator when people are upset with something, it, it will come out. I, I have been picketed before when um, when I took over here, people really didn't want me to take over and um, had I had to get a protection order at one point. Um, I, I did experience a lot of uh, verbal violence. Um, and uh, mostly directed at my my marriage uh, with my partner. And um, I felt I needed to get some assistance through the courts because I felt um, it had crossed the line of just being about my workplace. It was then about my my house and my home and my, my partner and life. I'm, I'm really sorry that that um, that happened to you. It shouldn't. But um, but it but it does happen. Um, yeah. And, you know, the good news in that 
um, the judge did grant me the protection order and there, there would be a time. And I think Gia can probably identify with this where even the courts and the systems that are supposed to protect us don't always. And so I was, I was granted a, a protection order in that situation. That is good. And, uh, uh, Gia, you had, um, uh, any incidents in, in middle school or high school or? Well, it's interesting, you know, I think, I think it was confusing growing up, not knowing about what it meant to be LGBTQ. There wasn't any like, like role models to sort of see in the, in the seventies that much around what it meant to be LGBTQ in my world. I grew up in a very conservative Catholic house and no one was talking about anything positive related to LGBTQ, even though I felt these feelings. Um, there was nothing really said positive about it. In fact, the things that I was seeing around being, especially being trans, um, were negative. And so from a younger age, even though I felt uh, more like my sisters than my brothers, um, there were depictions of people like me in movies and TV that were really monstrous. And and that really made me confused about my feelings about who I was as a, as a trans person. Um, so I kind of hid that from the world. Um, but a few times, you know, you can't hide it all the time. <laughs> so sometimes little bits would slip out, of course. And I remember in high school, by the time I got to high school, I was a pretty athletic kid and into sports and stuff. But one day I decided to wear uh, a pink carnation on my shirt. And uh, and I got attacked for doing that in, in the cafeteria in front of hundreds of other kids. It was called Horrible Names. Um was it a physical attack or verbal? Oh, it was it was a very violent attack. Yeah, for sure. It turned into something very, very scarring. Um, someone I thought was my friend, you know, called me horrible names and ripped the flower off my shirt, ripped my shirt. And, uh, you know, before it got too violent, we were separated by some, some teachers. But, you know, this was something that, you know, taught me it was going to be probably very difficult for me to be really me in this world. <laughs> Um, especially being trans in a world that doesn't understand that right now. And so I kind of kept that again to myself for, for a while, even, you know, into my adulthood, that part of my life was very, very quiet and very secret. Uh, and it wasn't until I was in my forties that I actually embraced my uh, authentic self as a public school teacher here in Maine. And so, um, yeah, that those those childhood experiences can last a long time and prevent you from doing the things and being, being who you are, unfortunately. Yeah, it's um it I mean but I I have I don't know, worked um trying to stop people from committing hate crimes in schools and, and elsewhere and it's uh and even when everything goes right in the criminal justice system um it doesn't take away um the hurt and sometimes for people the fear um, um, you are listening to change agents conversations with human rights and social justice advocates on werufm my guests today are Gia Drew, Executive Director of Equality Maine in Portland, and Tracy Hare, the Executive Director of Home uh, 
we are discussing issues affecting LGBT people in Maine and perhaps um, so I, I'd be interested from um, uh, from both of you is uh, what's the what's the change that you've seen uh, in Maine uh, with particularly uh, let's start with um, with young people um, uh, you know up up through high school. Um, how does it compare from uh, uh, whenever you can first remember it or um, and what it's like now? I think there's both a plus and a minus to this question. But. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I was 19 when I landed in Maine, and I think... Um, one of the I'm no I notice you know, I live next door to an alternative school and I you know I celebrate that that youth are are able to have a platform to share who they are and at a much younger age than than I suppose Gia and I were able to coming out in high school in the 90s for me would have not not been received as well as uh, today in the school systems. Um, so I, I think, I think um, I have to celebrate that, but I also think that has created this um, violence towards educators uh, that I've never seen before. It's just let's, heartbreaking. Let's come back to that in just a, a little bit, um, uh, because that is particularly disturbing. Uh, Gia, what have you seen in terms of the change, uh, perhaps from violence toward LGBT students in school or harassment or other things? Yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> I think in terms of you know the the world I grew up in, um, there was no visibility and around LGBTQ young people being out. I maybe knew about one or two kids in my high school who I just assumed were like me, but we really didn't have a way to talk about it or a safe place to do that in the in the 70s and 80s. And so uh, having been a teacher for 20 years, I got to see sort of the evolution over time, started teaching in the early 90s and, and left teaching in the uh, about 12 years ago. And I definitely saw a gradual progress of and more and more one uh, teachers and parents coming out. <laughs> Uh, which really, which was really wonderful, and seeing more pe uh, role models of LGBTQ people in media and movies or TV or elected officials, um, and so I think that gave uh, opportunity for more young people to say, "This is me." Uh, at earlier ages, you know, I got to meet and interact with with kids um, more regularly through the last, especially fifteen years, um, in a, in a very more positive light than what I grew up with, for sure. I think there was great progress around being LGBTQ and being young, uh, especially here in Maine, up until about five or six years ago, when there were, you know, we, we would have gatherings, we would have uh, conferences, and um, I think there were nearly, there are nearly still probably 90 clubs in middle schools and high schools that are called GSAs or 
GSTAs, which are gender sexuality alliances or something like that, that meet regularly to provide a safe space for LGBTQ people. And these th- these places didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so, yeah, I think definitely there's been a, a great uh, explosion of visibility around LGBTQ youth and with the uh, advent or invention and proliferation of the internet and smartphones, there's a, a lot more ways young people can see themselves reflected back and ways to connect with one another um, where kids are saying, this is who I am and I'm not going to wait until I'm older. And there's no reason why a young person needs to wait uh, to be who they are. And so I think I, I love their impatience about being themselves. And I think society just hasn't caught up um, to where young people are. I, I would agree really with your timing um, that uh, when I started working 30 years ago, um, trying to um, stop hate crimes, that uh, the, ri- the risk of violence was much higher than it is now. Um, uh, um, well, I think we'll be talking about things that have happened over the past five years uh, that are uh, disturbing. Uh, but but that didn't mean that every, by any means, every uh, LGBTQ student is feeling good about themselves or because because they still can hear the comments. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting of the youth that fall into homelessness every year, about 40 percent identify as LGBTQ. Um, So that's an alarming number. And I think it speaks to youth not feeling safe in their household, their home, right? They're very, their nest. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and that adds a whole nother part to this. Um, So, um, yeah, you had uh, an uh, incident as a um, as a young teacher uh, with a principal. Is this a good story or a bad story? <laughs> I think this is a good story. This is a um, uh, story about you presenting yourself. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the interesting things, I guess, in my life. Um, when I was thinking about coming out as trans, as a teacher here, as a public school teacher in Maine, I got to meet uh, another legendary teacher, uh, Betsy Parsons, uh, who some may know on the on the radio today. Betsy was a, a, a leader uh, in LGBTQ activism. She was, a, I think, an English teacher in Portland for many years and was the first out uh, teacher in a public school in the 90s. And I got to meet her before I came out. Uh, and I and I'd asked her, "What do you think I could come out?" <laughs> like, I wonder what that would be like for a, a trans person to come out as a teacher. Um, and she goes, I, "She is like, I don't know. I think there's been one other teacher that may have done it, but they did it kind of quietly. Um, and you would be kind of the first person to transition on the job in a public school in a very visible way. And so I was petrified about what that may look like." Um, because that really hadn't been done and there wasn't, wasn't a roadmap for this on how to like, who do I tell? Do I have to tell anybody? Can I just go to, can I just be me and go to work and do the job I've been doing? Um, but I felt, I felt good about talking to my principal at the time 
he seemed to be very understanding. And I remember I set up a meeting with him uh, in his office. Um, and I still, I got very nervous because you're going to the principal's office and that usually isn't good, but, uh, but I wanted to tell him what was going on in my life to see if he would be supportive. And I, I told him and I said, Hey, this is, this is what I'm going through. This is uh, what I like to be called moving forward. Miss Drew instead of Mr. Drew and use she, her pronouns. And, you know, he was very gracious. Um, he thanked me for trusting him and he said, well, we've, I've never done this before, but, you know, together we can, we can work this out. And that felt really good and reassuring um, for the short term. Um, unfortunately, he left that position uh, a couple months later and uh, things went downhill. Once I actually was teaching as, out as a transgender teacher, um, it felt like there was a, you know, magnifying glass on me in a spotlight uh, and it became very, very difficult in the community I was working in to be out in trans and, and be a teacher and a coach. Um, was that partly why you left teaching? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of a, a couple of different things happened. You know, um, I loved where I was teaching and I was coaching and I happened to be an art teacher and there was a budget crisis. And so I think there was a, I hate the phrase perfect storm, but there was an ugly storm brewing um and i ended up being uh let go after 10 years in this district and being a, a celebrated teacher and coach and i had learned afterwards that there really was a a movement of, of parents who organized to get rid of me in my community and i guess that played a role in in me being laid off as a teacher um even though we had policies and laws here in the state that protect against discrimination, that doesn't mean uh, it doesn't happen. And I definitely felt that as I was let go as a teacher and I was unable to get another job for as a teacher for, for a couple of years and I went on unemployment. And, you know, it was very humbling, you know, to, to see the world the way it really is, um, to recognize we still have a long way to go. And so in that process, I connected with some of the really great LGBTQ organizations here in Maine, like Maine Transnet and Glisten and Inequality Maine. And I found this wonderful community that I'm part of. And, um, I can look back and, you know, I'm thankful I lost my job. And uh, it's, it's art, funny to say, but I also say that with a lot of privilege. You know, I, I was able to navigate that world and, and survive through that because of, you know, a lot of things that have been given to me. Uh, but it was very humbling and I recognize how much more work that has to be done here. And it's opened the door to meeting more people related to human rights. Well, we're going to talk about some of those issues, but, but I'm really sorry that happened to you. It shouldn't, it shouldn't have happened. Um, you are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU-FM. My guests today are Gia Drew, Executive Director of Equality Maine and Tracy Hare, uh, the executive director of HOME. We are discussing issues affecting the LGBT people. Um, um, so uh, for, for either of you, and maybe I'll um, start, um, Tracy, with you. Um, have, things, have things changed, uh, not just in, well, let's start with school, both with teachers and um, students uh, 
uh, over the past five years has has have probably depends on what school you're in, but have things changed for the better or for the worse? Ah, well, it's a hard question. Um, I, I think I'm going to say for the worst. Uh, I think there's been a what I've observed, and I'm not an educator or in the school system. <laughs> I've observed just this sort of acceptance of violence, acceptance of of um, harming others with with your thoughts if you disagree with them, and so there's kind of a shoot from the hip culture that we're, we've entered where um so so i think it's i think it's worse I, if i if you relate if you compare the freedom of coming out within your school systems and your structures to the violence that comes with that i think the violence is far outweighing the celebration that i talked of just a few minutes ago that kids are more able to come out now I'm observing complete strangers um, going after people. Um, so, so I, I feel like it's worse. Mm -hmm. And I certainly go ahead. What are the context of somebody going off? I mean, has it been? Have you had that experience? I have. I um, in the past. I, I, I think if people knew uh, that I was married to a woman or or, or my who I am. Um, they, those opinions may be in a in a discussion or uh, a thoughtful opinion sharing. Now it would be more. There's a lot of online hate um, for for the the incident that I talked of earlier. There were ten or twelve people whom I'd never met um, calling me names. Her, and you know, names do hurt, and I think we we have to honor that. That. Um, causing causing harm um turning me into immigration authorities um just um things to intentionally harm me um and my place in the world you know how dare she love someone how dare she have a right to be in this country send the queers back we don't need more queers in this country i've heard it all and um Sometimes those things come out when you're facing trauma in your own world. Um, and I could use the, the passing of my mother, not being able to go to my own country to honor her passing, while at the same time um, <coughs> getting sort of harass harassment here for, for the lifestyle that's, um, that, that I'm in or who I am. Sorry that happened. That's... Um, should not be. Um, our our teachers, our librarians, are um, uh, seem to be in some places at risk. Um, uh, is is that a is there a serious issue? Or are people leaving their professions? Um, I I can't. I'll pass that one to Gia. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately, Steve, there's definitely been an uprise, an increasing of attacks on on education professionals, teachers, coaches, volunteers, anybody who is supportive of LGBTQ people at school. It's become um, very dangerous for uh, an adult to say they're supportive of LGBTQ kids in schools uh, and very dangerous for to be out as an LGBTQ teacher. Um, the attacks are 
are relentless and the opposition, the people that are doing this are, are organized um, nationally and they have a playbook and it's, it's filled with personal attacks and outing people, uh, stalking them, putting bounties on them, something called doxing, which is sharing their personal information about who they are and where they live. Um, and it's becoming really scary to be an ally or to be an LGBTQ adult in, in public education because of this. And I've known of, of a couple teachers who have left the profession because it just became too much for them, um, which is really unfortunate. Um, we need we need wonderful teachers who are diverse, including LGBTQ teachers, and we need strong allies in education. And um, I think it's become really hostile against allies and adults who are supportive of LGBTQ people. And is it increasing from your perspective? Oh, absolutely. There's, it's, 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 I don't know if ridiculous is the right word, but um, I've been doing this work now for about 11, 12 years, and we've never seen so many instances of, of attacks on adults who are supportive, like librarians, like you said, or teachers, um, I've never seen so much of this before. And so this is a very new, um, or maybe a re rehash of what maybe would have happened 20, 30 years ago. But I think that it's really, the intensity has really increased dramatically in the last five years, or just the last two years. And are um, uh, people coming after uh, um, people in your organization and other organizations in Maine as well? Yes, absolutely. We've seen attacks on LGBTQ organizations, um, the shooting at the, uh, the nightclub in Colorado in Pulse about six years ago, and then at our community center in Portland was, was attacked. Um, many of the Pride festivals last summer um, there were threats and protests around them, physically intimidating kids who were showing up and parents. And then I was even, my house was attacked last summer. Um, someone shared information about where I live and they came to my door looking for me, saying horrible things about me and wanting to do something to me. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's very real, um, for sure. And that is, uh, is scary for a lot of people. I, I wonder how many people know what you've just both have been talking about. Um, is it uh, is it widely spread? I mean, I'm sure if in the school system, yes, but more broadly. Well, I think what I was sort of saying earlier, it's almost like it's gone from an incident-based harassment to a cultural thing it's i think we're right at the precipice in this country of making that kind of hate and violence a cultural norm and um so i think it's well known and accepted um unfortunately we you know our little town of bucksport so less than five thousand people we were heading into our third pride uh, event and the first one the second one our pride banner was cut in half on camera <laughs> Um, at a public intersection 
Um, and that's that's pretty bold, right? You're at probably the busiest intersection in the small town, and you can just feel empowered to walk up to the sign and slash it in half. Unfortunately, uh, the town council uh, voted to replace that with town funds, which was a great gesture of support. But we can't deny that that happened in the first place and that a human being felt empowered in public to to do that. Uh, um, both of what you're talking about is, is deeply disturbing. Is is it um, is religion part of uh, what you can think of, or is it mostly not? From my corner of the world, and, and keep in mind, I don't work um, in the same work as Gia every day. But um, what I'm experiencing is that religion's playing a part at the pulpit and folks are leaving those services uh with with the the hatred um and so it's in the i remember in 1995 i stood downtown bangor at my first ever pride parade and i remember um, the chair of the christian civic league standing there with a sign and i was with a friend who hadn't transitioned yet um and this, you know, lots of Bible verses on their signs. And I haven't experienced too much of that in our small town. But what I have experienced is this really uh, um, sort of polite discrimination, polite hate. Um, I'm not going to hold a sign in your face, but I, I'm going to I, I ran for town council. So I'm going to spread misinformation about this town council person on my on my Facebook page. It's happening in, in our small town in, in that way. Um, I don't feel unsafe in, in our small town. Um, but again, I to say what Gia said earlier, I'm in a place of privilege. I'm housed. I have a job um, and I'm white. Uh, I, if I were a non-white LGBTQ person, what would my life be like in this small town? I suspect it would be very different. If I was a gay male in this town, what would my life be? So I, I recognize there are even layers of privilege within our own community. Um, and yet, um, what about um, you? Is to, Do you find that there's a religious um, part of this? You know, that's a good question. You know, Maine is the least religious state in the country. Uh, we have at least the number of people practicing an organized faith in Maine. And so I, I think the idea of religion behind all this isn't, I don't know, I'm, I'm really suspect of that. It's a, It seems to be more political in nature, connected to something called some Christian national, you know, thing. Not very Christian uh, to hate your neighbor. One, uh, so I don't think it's deeply religious. I, I do think it's political in nature, um, in terms of gaining political power, um, and so we see that with different uh, politicians around the country using issues related to LGBTQ as a way to getting more power, and hence they most of those politicians aren't very religiously like feverish. And so whether you're talking about our former governor here in Maine or the governor in Florida or Texas, are very hostile to our community. They don't come off as very religious in terms of the way they speak publicly. Uh, 
So there's a mix of religion in there, but it's more more about power and politics. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU FM. My guests today are Gia Gru, uh, Executive Director of Equality Maine, and Tracy Hare, the Executive Director of Home, and and we are discussing issues affecting LGBTQ people and allies. Um, uh, here, um, so when uh, what you've described about um, schools, and I would imagine also in 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 libraries, um, how is that affecting students, or either of you? Well, uh, yeah, I can I can start. Um, but what we're noticing is young people are. Are really suffering. Um, their sense of self, their sense of well-being, their sense of safety um, is, is 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 a really breaking point. And not just LGBTQ young people. I think all young people have gone through a lot just in the last few years related to to COVID specifically. But then compound that with increasing attacks on LGBTQ people in the public conversation around what it means to be LGBTQ, especially trans, um, is really having an impact on young people and their and their ability to, you know, go to school and feel safe and feel good about themselves. And so we're seeing a really increased number of young people feeling depressed and anxious and unfortunately suicidal uh, about who they are. Um, and you know this is a direct correlation to what's being said and what's being done at the local level and at the state level and at the national level. It's it's hard if you're a young person to to navigate this. Um, I mean, some young people do have supportive far- parents and family members that help them navigate these these struggles and can help them sort of say, "You are safe. We're going to protect you." But if you don't have that supportive family and network around you, it can be really terrifying. To, to not know what today is going to look like when you're hearing so much anger and hatred uh, aimed at you personally. That is deeply saddening and uh, and equally dis- disturbing because it's uh, it's 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 people simply r- reading the, the tea leaves around them. Um, uh, as opposed to um, s- somebody using violence, which is it's uh, which at some point we'll be able to stop. But um, what about uh, issues for older LGBTQ people? Uh, Tracy, I. So, so I think it's interesting because I think older LGBTQ people are also carrying decades of trauma that I couldn't even imagine. Um, you know, my partner is older than me. Um, and I have, uh, a lot of friends who are older LGBTQ people and just to hear their stories of what their lives were, were like, um, 
I think we've never really dealt with that trauma and its repercussions today and then um, aligned it with what it how is it what it's like to live in, in this world where there's more um, more young people out. Um, I think for the most part, uh, m- most of the folks that I'm in and around are are out. I, I don't. Um, I'm not aware of anyone in in the closet uh, who is older. Uh, I think generally, you know, there have been some changes in the law over the last ten years that have made life a little more secure for older people. Retirement accounts, hospital, and legal issues. I think there were well over 400 laws that that we were um, we had access to once we were able to marry. And I think that disproportionately impacted older people and older people in poverty. Um, and I, I think when we talk about younger people and older people, we have to look at the systems that keep us safe generally, regardless of our our, um, our identity. And so when those systems are under attack, then it, I think it makes it, it presents more vulnerability for people. For example, um, in, we had a health emergency in our household and uh, access to my partner's in the hospital was was easy. You rewind that just 10 years ago, not so much. Um, and I think we all hear those stories of um, how do we care for our uh, older partners if they need care? Will we have access to, to, to them in hospitals? And so that's changed. And I think that's provided more security. But I don't think we really accurately, like all, all um, cultures and groups that have been traumatized, we, we don't, we're not very good in this country of addressing that trauma and, and talking about that and unpacking that. We're just sort of in a culture where it's okay, that, that era is over. Here we are, but we, I think we, we um, could do better at honoring the struggle of uh, the, the LGBTQ people that came before us. And uh, do you your thoughts about older people and maybe even people who are in nursing homes or, other issues. Yeah, I appreciate what Tracy was saying. And it's been really, really wonderful for me to be at Equality Maine. We've we've we have a special program called Network for Older Adults. It used to be called Sage Maine. Um in its programs and services and advocacy for older LGBTQ adults. And uh it's been really wonderful for me to connect with older members of our community. And these are folks who, some of them have been out for decades and have weathered an incredible life and storm of, like Tracy said, some of them through incredible trauma from their childhood or if they've survived the plague of HIV and AIDS, have maybe lost many people in their lives. Um, and then I'm still meeting people who are coming out in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is lovely too. You're never too young or too old uh, to be LGBTQ. Um, but we also know that many older LGBTQ people don't have the same security net around them that their counterparts have had. And that could be they don't have they never had children. And so as they age, they don't have that support network of kids around them to help them out. You know, financially, they were never able to marry when they were in that marriaging age and when they were younger. So they never could benefit from the benefits of, of marriage or pensions or things like that um, growing up. 
you know, and things like that are really compounded as you age. And so we do see a number of older adults struggling financially as they age in this world and are very worried as they're thinking about what's going to happen to me if I go to a nursing home or a long-term care, do I have to go back in the closet? And we know those numbers actually prove that, you know, the numbers of older LGBTQ saying they're LGBTQ actually drop off and they're not as, they're not as comfortable saying they're LGBTQ as they're older because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them in these care facilities. And I think that's something that we're really trying to sort of confront by providing some awareness and education to nursing homes, hospitals, and long-term care facilities. So older LGBTQ adults can, can age in place if they choose to um, and, and thrive and enjoy their, their older years and not worry about discrimination. And so uh, I'm very fortunate that I work with an organization that works with older adults, but also understands the importance of intergenerational relationships and bonds. And I think one of the things we're learning is when we connect young people to older adults, they learn about resilience and longevity, and it gives them a sense of hope that there will be a future. And so I'm hopeful that when we have these conversations, we're including multi-generational folks. So I'm, I'm interested in, uh, for both of you, in terms of what the next let's say, uh, five plus years would be. Um, do you have a sense of optimism? Do you have a sense of um, some level of dread uh, or perhaps both? That's a hard one. I, 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 I would say perhaps both, right? Before, and, and this is just scaling down to my personal life. Um, I'm, I'm, our marriage is recognized. We have the securities of what that marriage recognition looks like. Yet, uh, there's a coordinated, um, powerful effort to derail all of the work that we've done in the last, uh, two decades. And so, um, I, I'm a little afraid. What does, what does our marriage look like? If we, if the election doesn't go in a way that supports who I am, will the violence escalate if there's um, not a concerted cultural shift in our country? So uh, we're still getting close to the end here, but um, Gio, do you have your thoughts about? Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick about it. You know, I'm. I wouldn't have made it this far if I wasn't hopeful. Um, and I, I actually believe that we'll get through this. Uh, we have to. There's no other option, actually. Um, and I think Maine is a testament to that. You know, we have worked really hard to, at the grassroots level, to connect and organize and elect pro-equality people. And I think it is, it's scary right now, but I think it's in everyone's best interest to, it will be a stronger state and a stronger uh, country if we confront what's what we're all facing, uh, and we need we need allies to step up and speak up, and I think that's the one thing we're we're quite, we're missing right now, is yes, members of our community are doing a really great job, but we need more folks who are supportive of us to step up and speak up um, to help us, because I think that's going to really turn the tides. Yeah, that makes a uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
I, I, I wish we weren't in a situation where uh, the level of harassment uh, and perhaps worse, um, not only confront students, but um, um, people and librarians and teachers and others. It's, uh, it's sad. Um, uh, and uh, well, I, I thank you a lot for spending the time doing this. Um, it's uh, it's 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 really uh, it's really important. Um, and I'm glad that both of you and all the other people that you are working with in different ways. You've been listening to Change Agents on WERU-FM, Conversations Between Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. Today's guests have been Tracy Hare and uh, Kia Drew, we have been discussing issues that concern LGBT people in Maine. He is the executive director of Equality Maine. Uh, Tracy is the executive director of Home. You can listen to Change Agents on the first Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. or on the World Wide Web. And uh, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for the work that you do every day. So thank you very much.